Amen. Let us turn now to God's holy word. We turn to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 21. The book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament and the chapter 21. This is God's holy word. Let us hear together God's precious word here this morning. And all to the glory of his name and to the good of our needful and never dying souls. Let us hear God's word. Second Samuel chapter 21. Then there was a famine in the days of David three years. Year after year, and David inquired of the Lord And the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore, David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement, that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor of his house, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. And they answered the king, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rispah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bare unto Saul, Ammoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalothite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. And Rispah, the daughter of Ahah, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock, from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor beasts of the field by night. And it was told David what Rispah, the daughter of Ahar, the concubine of Saul, had done. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them. When the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa, and he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged. 
And the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the sepulchre of Kish his father. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. And Ishbenabob, Nob, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shackles of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. And it came to pass after this that there was Again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And Sibekai, the Hushathite, slew Saph, which was of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the sons of Jarrah-Ogrim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where was a man of great stature, that had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number. And he also was born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to open it up to our understanding and bless it for his name's sake. Let us come before the Lord together in prayer. Well, dear friends, I'd like to turn your prevalent attention to that passage of God's holy word that I read to you in your hearing much earlier in the service. Second Samuel chapter 21. We continue in our week-by-week exposition going through God's precious word, and uh, we come now to a period where we could rightly say, we could put over this passage of Scripture, the justice and the mercy of God. We see the justice of God in dealing with the sin that was committed against the Gibeonites, and also the mercy of God in delivering David and the Israelites from the Philistines, who were a a continual annoyance and uh, posed a constant threat to them in the land of Canaan. Of course, the people of Israel have been in the land of Canaan now for hundreds of years, ever since the day of Joshua. And an oath was made to protect the Gibeonites, who had sworn themselves to be servants of Israel, remember, because they were afraid of being destroyed. And they actually lied, didn't they, to Joshua and to the men of Israel and said that they were from afar away. But Joshua and the people found out, really, that they were inhabitants of Canaan. But nonetheless, mercy was shown to them in that and Joshua and the princes made an oath. They made a covenant with 
the people of Gibeon to spare their lives, not to slay them. But later on, this wicked king Saul slays them. God is a God of justice. Now, my friends, let me say to you, at this time of year, many are standing up in pulpits and spewing from their mouths religious platitudes that have no meaning or bearing and no significance. Many will come to church, particularly at this time of year, and will not be found in a church the rest of the year, and they just want to hear peace on earth, joy to all men, but they know nothing about the Savior, and you'll not see them the rest of the year. Sadly, there are even many Christians who you'll not find in the church today because it's December the 25th, and you won't find them. But it is the Lord's Day. So it seems that a day, the 25th of December, which is not even in the Bible, by the way, and I'm not saying for one instant that I don't rejoice in the Savior coming into the world, I do rejoice in Jesus Christ coming in the world. But we are commanded to keep one day for the Lord, and that is the Lord's day. You see, because not only did he come into the world, but he rose from the grave. A Savior simply going into the manger is not enough. The Savior had to live the life that I never lived. But ultimately, he had to go to the cross. If there is no cross... There's no heaven for the Christian. There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no eternal life. That's why the Lord's Day is paramount. Because it speaks of my resurrection. There is going to one day be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The Lord Jesus said it, and he is no liar. He said in John 5, Marvel not, the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall come forth. Those that have done good, who are they that have done good? Those that have obeyed his commandments. And those that have not done good, those that have done good to the resurrection of eternal life, those that have denied him to damnation. Of course, he's come to give life. Come to give eternal life, but he's also come to give life. Now, here we are in this passage of Scripture. And as remember, as I quoted in prayer, Just a moment ago, the Lord Jesus said to the Jews in his day, Ye search the Scriptures, and in them ye think ye have eternal life, but it is they which do testify of me. David, of course, is a wonderful type of the Lord Jesus. Certainly he wasn't a perfect man. But we are told in Scripture, we know that Samuel the prophet said that through the line, the lineage of David would come the Savior into the world. Now, David was a great king. He is described as a man after God's own heart. He certainly had his faults. And we see something here of the vindication of David in this chapter as a righteous king, as a good king. And we also see in this passage, as I said, we could write over this passage, the justice and the mercy of God. Now, let me explain. We've seen in the last few chapters the sinful failures of David. We've seen the subtlety of sin, haven't we? The folly of his sin. And how it showed that he needed to constantly walk near to God. Remember when he should have been doing the Lord's work and he wasn't? What did he do? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
And then that led to slaying of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And then that went on to other sin. And he, from that moment, seemed to make mistake after mistake. He made compromise after compromise. His son saw his sin, and that made him a very weak father. It made him a very weak leader. And these things should be constantly reminding us that sin hampers the Christian life. Sin makes us very weak. People don't listen to you when they see you stumble and fall. They say, aha, look, he's a hypocrite. She's a hypocrite. How dare you speak to me and tell me what to do? And, uh, well, we feel that, don't we? We say, well, of course, I, I do feel I'm a hypocrite. But it doesn't matter. Right is right, wrong is wrong. David had a terrible son. Remember Absalom and the awful things that he did to David and David's house. And David nearly completely lost the kingdom because of Absalom. And David failed to bring his son to justice. And that was wrong. And therefore David in his weakness became a very poor leader. But now he seems uh, to be uh, being restored from his backslidden state. Now in this chapter... We have an account, as we come here to chapter 21 of Second Samuel, of the Lord's justice and judgment in Israel concerning the Gibeonites, but also his mercy in delivering them, the Israelites, from the Philistines. Remember, God had sent the people into Canaan to judge the wicked Canaanites because the Canaanites, they threw their children, there was child sacrifice. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? Many of the Canaanites sacrificed their children. It was part judgment to the Canaanites. And uh, the Philistines were a wicked people. They were an idolatrous people. But here, what we see is the reach, we could say, of God's judgment relating to an oath that was made centuries ago. How long ago was it that Joshua was leader? Long, long time. At least 450 years ago, when we come to this passage of Scripture. You've got the whole period of the judges. And of course, Joshua was before that. And then, as I said, you've got at the end of this chapter, as we'll see, God's mercy to Israel in preserving them from the Philistines. Israel was so undeserving. They were so unthankful. Now, here in this chapter, one of the things we can say is David vindicates himself, or we could rather say the Lord vindicates David, who for the last chapters has lived a very compromised and questionable Christian life. And uh, this passage really sets the record straight. One of the things we could say, David was a man who eventually did really begin to honor the Lord again. But remember he was charged by Shimei in Second Samuel 16 as being a guilty man, guilty of the blood of Saul's house. Remember how Shimei took dust and cast it up in the air and cursed David before all the men of Israel. You remember that in chapter 16, verses 5 to 13. He went along, it says there, the hillside against David and cursed as he went throwing stones at him and cast dust. This is before all the children of Israel. 
And Shimei was accusing David, really, of being somebody who touched Saul, the Lord's anointed, and did him harm. But David did no harm to Saul. Remember, even though Saul tried to kill him three times with a javelin, threw a javelin at him, and Saul even sent squads of armies against David, and yet David never lifted a finger against Saul, who was the Lord's anointed at that time. And this chapter really sets the record straight, because you see how David here deals with these seven men. And uh, what we see is that David here, you notice in the first verse, there is a famine in the land for how long? It says there, three years. There was a famine in the land, year after year. And therefore, David recognized that this was of the hand of the Lord, because it says there, he inquired of the Lord. That is, he went to the Lord in prayer, and no doubt to the priests, and asked, why this famine? Why is it taking place? So David saw that the land and the people were impoverished year after year, and that the Lord had his hand of judgment upon Israel because of this, because of something. He didn't know why. And the Lord tells him here. So let us in the first place notice that the Lord has a perfect record of everything. And it's just not here what Saul did against the Gibeonites, but against things that we have done against each other and against the Lord. The Lord has a perfect record of sin. And we mustn't think that because time passes by that God forgets. God does not forget. If you notice in verse 1, then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered. Notice, it is for Saul, verse 1, and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Now, if you turn to Joshua chapter 9, verse 15, you'll notice there in Joshua 9, 15, that Joshua had made a covenant with the princes of Israel to protect these Gibeonites who came. They were, worried, they were concerned at that time of being wiped out by the Israelites, remember, because God had come to judge the land, and they actually lied to the Israelites and said, well, we're, we're from afar, but they learnt, the Israelites learnt, that they were basically Canaanites living in the land. But an oath had been made. Notice in Joshua 9.15, And Joshua made peace with them, and made a league with them, to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. So they made a league or a covenant with the Gibeonites, to protect them. And of course, if you notice in verse 11, it tells us that the Gibeonites also became the Israelite servants. It tells us that there. They, they became servants. They came under servitude of the Israelites. And also, if you notice in verse 18, and the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. So a covenant, an oath was made to protect these Gibeonites. And it was made before the Lord. 
and therefore it was binding. It's like marriage, you know, when people, two people get married, they make a covenant, they make an oath, and that's binding. The promises that we make are binding before the Lord. Also, when we join a church, we, we have a church covenant, and we expect church members to take that seriously. Our commitment not only to the Lord, but to each other. It's a covenant, an oath that we make, and so this was binding. But we know, we learn, we glean from this passage that King Saul, the previous king before David, had engaged in a terrible, in a heinous act of genocide and just about wiped out all of these uh, Gibeonite people. And what was the reason? It was not because the Lord commanded it, but it was to show zeal to Israel. Notice at the end of verse 2 there, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. That is, he was trying to show them that he was the big man, that he was a powerful leader, that he was one to be feared. He didn't do it for God's glory. He didn't do it because God commanded him to do this. But he did this to make a name for himself. And often people do that. And think about it. Saul, who was commanded to slay the wicked Amalekites, didn't slay them. But what does he do? When an oath is made to protect the Gibeonites, he doesn't protect them. Saul, who had failed to obey God, to deal with the wicked Amalekites, and yet now an oath was made all these years ago, sworn to protect these Gibeonites, he seeks to destroy them. What we could say about Saul is he was a self-serving man. He was a worldly man. He was a wicked king. We learn, actually, in this passage that he and his sons were responsible for this. It, it speaks here of his bloody house, that is, the house of Saul. There was a direct involvement of his sons in some way. We don't know how many were involved, but requirement here against justice is to be leveled. we told there at the end of the verse 1, when David inquires of the Lord... The Lord answers, it is for Saul and for his bloody house. See, Israel aren't blamed for it, but Saul is. Because he slew, it says there, the Gibeonites. So Saul's sons, in some way, some capacity, were directly responsible for the murder of these many Gibeonites. Now exactly when it took place, we don't know. The scriptures don't give an account of it. But we know that many of the Gibeonites were slain. Uh, This is all for his own image, for his own advancement, not for the glory of God and not to honor God's work. Now, something else Saul might have thought, he might have thought, well, what difference does it make? These Gibeonites are Canaanites anyway. Does God care? Well, he does care, because the oath was made in God's name. And that's true. Any oath we make, whether it's an oath in marriage, because God's name is at stake. And God does care whether an oath is made in God's name or or not. The Bible says our yes must be yes and our no must be no. And we must be men of integrity. We must be men of the word. Now, something else, perhaps many in Israel had forgotten what Saul had done. 
then it seems that nobody's questioning here at the moment. Why this famine? Why this famine? Why God's judgment? And uh, many in Israel had perhaps forgotten about the killing of the Gibeonites. But friends, let me say this. The Lord has not forgotten. Just as he has not forgotten the very first sin I committed or you committed in our lives. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. We are told in the book of the Revelation, the close of the Bible, that there is going to be that final day when the books are opened up and men are judged according to their deeds. But we're told there is another book that is opened up, the Lamb's Book of Life. For all that Christ has died for, they will not be judged for their sins because he bore their sins on the cross at Calvary. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? God's justice that was against me fell on Christ. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. They realize that. And they realize that any righteousness they have is from Christ, who is their righteousness. We have no righteousness, as the Bible says, of our own. When God looks at us, he sees that we're sinners. So this is not only showing the great need of atonement for sin, but we will also see God's mercy. Now this is a solemn lesson as we think here about what God sees here and this famine for three years. How long has it been since Saul has killed the Gibeonites? Well, David has been king for a long time. David is an old man now. But the Lord has not forgotten. And while we may forget... Remember, the Lord never forgets anything. And so here we read, David inquired of the Lord. Three years of famine, saying to David, something's not right. Would we have leaders like David today? Men who sought after God. You know, men usually today, even our politicians and others, you know, God is not the first cause in their minds as to why things happen. But God is always the first cause. He controls everything. We're told in the book of the Revelation, as we've been studying, the famines, the pestilences in this world, are all part of God's warnings and judgment, that he is coming in final judgment. God is always the first cause of any calamity. Now, it's interesting, even then in the days of Moses, The magicians, the pharaoh, did better than our people today in our land. Even the magicians in Egypt had some acknowledgement that those ten plagues that were falling upon them were the finger of God. We're told in Exodus 8 verse 19, Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. You say, it's the problem with man's heart. Even though man might even know, and their own people will tell them, God is angry, man's heart is hard, isn't it? And man will not relent. Something else, as we come to this passage. Since Saul's slaughter of these humble Gibeonites, it's interesting We do not have a single word from the Gibeonites that they moaned, that they complained. Those that remained alive about what had happened. 
Well, perhaps they lived in fear. And it's interesting here that they reject any monetary compensation for the murder of their families. Notice in verse 3, Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? Wherewith shall I make the atonement? That ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord. And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver, nor gold. They said, We don't want money. They weren't concerned. It's strange today, isn't it? I don't know if you get these phone calls. Do you know somebody who knows somebody who's been injured in an accident? There's always this desire for monetary compensation. The friends, one day things are going to be compensated perfectly by God's justice. Aren't they? And look here at the Gibeonites. We'll have no silver, no gold for Saul, nor his house. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. They're even saying we don't want any Israelite to die. But we want those who were responsible to be met with justice. Notice, neither for us shall thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, what shall ye shall say that I will do for you? And they go on to say, we want seven of the men of Saul's family. Now, monetary compensation for murder was strictly forbidden and is strictly forbidden in Scripture. Let me show you. Numbers 35, verse 31. Numbers 35, verse 31. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer which is guilty of death. So no monetary satisfaction, but he shall be surely be put to death. So life for life. It's what we call lex telionis, exact retribution. And ye shall take no satisfaction for him that is fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again and dwell in the land until the death of the priest. So shall ye not pollute the land wherein ye are, for the blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed if the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. So that man's blood had to be shed. We're told in Genesis chapter 9, aren't we, as well? Life for life. So there could be no monetary compensation. Because God is placing the importance on the sanctity of life. And life is a precious thing. God has given it. And uh, justice is required as far as God is concerned against life. That's why we do believe that capital punishment is right. It's not only a deterrent in society against murder. Murderers think twice. But it, it shows, doesn't it, the sanctity of life. Neither, you notice, do they ask, these Gibeonites, they don't also ask for freedom from servitude. That's interesting. Remember, they were the slaves of the Israelites. Now think of this. They see themselves as still bound to that covenant, despite what Saul had done. Now there's a lesson in itself. Maybe even in your marriage. Your loved one might, might have done something wrong to you. You are still bound by the covenant oath that you made. Of course, except for, we're told, for near, except for fornication, except for adultery. 
which terminates the marriage. But we're bound. And this is how the Gibeonites saw themselves as bound to that covenant, that oath made with Joshua in Joshua 9. And notice again, neither shall thou kill any man in Israel. So not just any man, but David says, who, what, what would you like? And they say, well, these bloody sons of Saul. Now, what we read in this chapter is that this justice is passed upon the seven sons of Saul who are remaining and perhaps be even old men now. And we notice that God's wrath is removed, that the curse is removed from the land and there is water again in the land and there is punishment for the people. So the whole while, God's name had been dishonored by this oath that had not been kept. And uh, that's so important to remind ourselves, and it reminds us of the sanctity of life that God places over each one. Even these Gibeonites, who may not have been esteemed as much in the eyes of Israel and Saul, but every human life is precious to God. So we need to realize that. Now, you notice that the Lord's name is vindicated here in all of this because the oath was made in God's name. And that's so important. Verse 5, And they answered the king, The man that consumed us and devised against us that we should be destroyed from the remaining coasts of Israel. Let seven men of his sons be delivered, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. So this is justice being met, right justice. Now we notice here that we know Mephibosheth quite well already, don't we? He's spared in the verse 7. And uh, because, remember, of that covenant oath that David made with Jonathan, and he showed kindness. And remember, Mephibosheth, he, he was a lame man, and he was dropped by his nurse at the age of five, and therefore he couldn't walk. And uh, somebody was looking after him, and David took him into the palace, and he sat at David's table every day. And David had shown kindness, and he's spared here. But there is another Mephibosheth in this passage here. Do you notice here, who is the son of Rispah, the wife of Saul. Now remember, Mephibosheth, the first one that I've just been speaking about, was the son of Jonathan. But here we have the son of Saul. Notice in the verse 7 we read, But the king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rispah, the daughter of Ahar, whom she bare unto Saul. So she was married to Saul. And what are the sons' names? Armoni and Mephibosheth. So there's another Mephibosheth here, and he's not spared. And neither are these other five sons who, it seems, have had direct involvement in this murderous affair against the Gibeonites. Now, the liberals, very common today, will say, well, this is just the way things were done in those days. You know, justice against people like this, but actually, the Lord approved of it because the famine was removed. The dearth was removed. The judgment 
was taken away. This has nothing to do with culture. Because remember, God is outside of culture. God is outside of time. God approved of it. And therefore, God removed the plague on the people. And there's a lesson here in judgment, isn't there? Judgment will not be removed until punishment was met. And this brings me to the cross, doesn't it? What happened at the cross? Why do God's people not go to hell? Because Christ bore the sins of all of his people on the cross. There was a judgment day at Calvary. The scriptures say God spared not his son, his only begotten son, but delivered him up. He was literally forsaken of the Father. Judgment fell upon Christ. There was justice at Calvary. Now, many people speak about God's mercy, but they'll not hear about the cross. God cannot just say, sin, men, let's put it in the bin. God had to deal with my sin there at Calvary. And all who believe on Christ. And so God's judgment would not be removed until punishment for sin was met. And here once again we are presented with the fact that God is a God of justice. Scriptures are constantly teaching this throughout. God doesn't change. And something else, in verses four to sorry, verses eleven to fourteen, we have the Lord's name and honor vindicated, which is most important. And the first thing I want you to see is this woman, her name is Rispa, the wife of Saul. Of course, Saul is now deceased. She shows kindness to the dead. That is to their bodies. Verses eight to ten. And we see, but the king took the two sons of Rispah, the daughter of Ahar, whom she bare to Saul, and these men are slain. We read verse 8 and verse 9, and hanged them, verse 9, on the hill before the Lord, and they fell all seven together and were put to death. Now we notice what this woman does. She takes some sackcloth and she puts it on a rock, and she lays on it for literally, she stays on this rock for, it seems, at least three months. And she protects the bodies against birds and wild beasts. We notice verse 10, And the rispa, the daughter of Ahar, took sackcloth and spread it for her, that is not for the sons, but for her, and she lay upon it from the beginning of harvest until water dropped them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. And it was told David, what Rispah, the daughter of Ahar, the concubine of Saul, had done. Think of this. Of course, these are her two sons here that have been slain and other five sons. But here she is protecting these bodies, preventing them from being torn apart. Now think of this. While these men were guilty, murderous, the body, man is made in the image of God. And we must never forget that. Think of it. What has sinned? Has the body sinned? No. The soul has sinned. And that's the difference. The scriptures say the soul that sins shall die. The body is not sinful. We are to have a proper respect for the body. It would be wrong, would it not, to 
um, desecrate the body. The body, it, it, you know, we are physical beings. But again, it's not, it's the soul inside you that is the real person. Your body is a shell. You must remember that. You, you, you are a spiritual being. The body is that which houses your soul. Isn't it? Now, some people say, well, there's some inconsistencies here. Well, let, let me deal with some of the inconsistencies. The Scriptures teach very clearly that if a man is executed, he should not hang overnight lest a curse come upon the land. You say, well, where do you get that from? If you turn with me to Deuteronomy 21. But let me say to you, as we're thinking about this inconsistency, it's only apparent. And I'll show you the difference. Deuteronomy 21, 22 says, If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and that would apply to these men, and he be put to death, Thou, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. But thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. Now why? That the land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, for an inheritance. Now there is a guilty man. The land is not cursed. But here we say, what's going on in this chapter? Well, you've read verse 1. The land is already cursed. You see, that's the difference. There's already the judgment of God come upon the land. Why should a man not hang upon a tree in Deuteronomy? Well, lest the curse come upon the land. But it's already happened here, hasn't it? In Second. Samuel 21. There's already God's curse upon the land. You see the lesson? And that's why there's a famine. But the people have ignored it. The people have ignored these things. And so she stays, how long? Until the rains come. And the rains coming shows what? God has lifted the curse. Do you see that from Scripture? God brought again a plentiful harvest. And this woman stayed, this woman Rispa stayed all this while. Because here was a godly woman. Yes, it was her own flesh. But it shows she had a respect for the sanctity of life and for the body. Now let me just say something else. The norm, you think about it here when it comes to our Savior. And we know, uh, I've been saying earlier on in the service, that the Savior came into the world to eventually end up on where? To be put to death, to be impaled upon a cruel Roman gibbet and to suffer. The norm was a man that was, a man was normally killed on a tree and then hanged on a tree. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he was hanged on a tree whilst impaled. So normally they would kill a man and then hang him on a tree. But the Lord was still alive when they put him 
on the tree. And that's the great lesson. Why? Because he was to bear the full weight of the curse of the law on behalf of his people. And if you've missed that, you've missed everything. Christ was still alive when they put him on the cross. The norm was a man had to die first and then he was put on a tree. But not in the case of our Savior. He was still living when he was bearing the wrath of Almighty God. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You see, you can learn so much from the Old Testament about Christ and his sufferings for his people. He had to be made a curse for us. He had no sin of his own. But the scriptures say, Peter says, our sins were laid on him. And he was still alive when he was being made a curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. And then Acts 5.29, Peter says, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he slew and hanged on a tree. When we speak of a tree, we mean wood. He was impaled upon that cruel Roman gibbet for our sins. And so what a lesson we have there. And uh, there's already a curse on the land. But you see, after those three months, when the rain came down, that was it. It was a sign that the curse was removed. And then we see here Saul, even Saul, the way David treats Saul, who was an enemy of David, remember, Saul is now dead. How he brings his body from relative obscurity and brings him and Jonathan to be buried in a suitable place. We see this in verse 12 to the verse 14. Verse 14, And the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, buried they in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, and so on. So there's a proper burial service. You treat the body with respect. But remember, it's the soul that sinned. Do we understand that? And the proof you have a soul, there might be people here today that say, well, How do I know there's a God? It's a good question to ask. You have a conscience. Have you ever lied? Let me ask you the question, is lying wrong? You say, well, it it is wrong. Well, where did you get that from? Because you're made in the image of God, and the fact that you have a conscience is proof that you have a soul. Animals don't have a conscience. They don't don't have an opinion about you or me. But we have opinions, don't we, about things. We know certain things are right and wrong. That is proof that you have a soul, my friend. That you have a conscience. You're made in the image of God. Therefore, it's not the body that sinned, but it's the soul. The scriptures say the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Your body is simply the house for your soul. 
Now, the way David treats here Saul, coming back to the narrative, shows the fact that David had no vindictiveness or no vindictive spirit concerning Saul. See how he treats Saul and the family with respect and dignity. And it shows that David was never motivated by contempt and bitterness in his life. Was he? Now, something else as we seek to draw a close this morning. It brings us here now, fourthly, as you notice, verse 15 onward to the end, to the Lord's mercies to David and Israel over the Philistines. Many times David was not faithful to the Lord, but the Lord was always faithful, even up to the end. We see David here, he goes up against It says here, men of giants. We know we've seen in our studies of Scripture, Goliath is described as a giant, eight foot. We're not talking about 35 foot, some sort of strange species of people. There's only one species of people. We all come from Adam. And Noah had three sons. And we've all come, really, from those three sons as they went to different parts of the world. So these were just particularly large men, like the Maasai warriors in Kenya. You know, you've got some very tall men there. So that's what we mean. That's what the Scriptures mean. These were rather large men. And David, he he goes up against one of them. It says here in verse 15, Moreover, the Philistines had yet war against with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. David was getting old. He used to be a mighty warrior for the Lord. Remember all his great exploits, and even how he slew Goliath. But now the enemy is too strong. But we see Abishai, remember the brother of Joab? He slays, does he not, this uh, giant. And here we really see the mercies, don't we, of God once again. Verse 17, but Abishai, the son of Zeruah, succored him and smote the Philistine and, and killed him. And then we have the words of comfort to David by his men. Verse 17b, and the men of David swear unto him, saying, thou shalt go no more with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. This is such a, so precious. David has really been low esteemed in the last few years of his life, hasn't he? With his sin and his backslidings. But now they say, David, we want to protect you. We're not going to send you, not going to allow you to go out into battle. David, you're an old man now. And so they value him. They see him here as the light of Israel. Of course, he's only the light of Israel because the Lord is his light. The Lord is the one that has given David wisdom. But this is a precious thing. And you younger people, you should appreciate the more aged and experienced in the Lord. Thank the Lord for them. And it's a wonderful thing. Now we see David once again respected by the people. David knew the Lord was his light. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, and so on. And then you notice in the verse 18 to the end, there are victories over four more of these large men. And these, we told in the verse 22, 
these four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So we really see the mercy, don't we, of the Lord to the, to the Israelites against these Philistines. As I say, these Philistines were wicked people. They were barbaric and they were idolatrous. And part of this slaying is all part of the Lord's judgment against them. Now, what lessons can we draw in conclusion to all that we've heard this morning? Well, the first I would say is this. How does the Lord view our oaths and our covenants? Think of this covenant that was made 400-something years ago under Joshua. It was still binding, wasn't it? Even though it was done in another generation. What must we say? God remembers the promises we've made. The oaths that we've made, covenants, whether in marriage or in church or in church life. David inquired of the Lord and the Lord says it's because of this sin. It's because you have not kept this commandment as my people. This is why there's judgment on the land. The Lord Jesus said, every idle word that men speak, they shall give an account of. And there are people, I'm afraid to say, that have committed themselves either in marriage or in church covenant. They've been rather idle with their words. Next week, as we gather around the Lord's table, we'll be saying the church covenant as we do every year, won't we? And what are those covenant promises? It's the Ten Commandments, the laws, Jeremiah 31, 31, that are written on our hearts. And one of them is to keep the Lord's day. Sadly, such are neglected. To love our brethren, to pray for them. We have sworn, as God's covenant people, to bind ourselves together in love. And to commit ourselves to those covenant promises. Let us be careful of our words. We'll not know the Lord's blessing. Friends, if we're light with our words. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. When you make a vow, Solomon says, be sure to pay it. Because God is not mocked. He wouldn't be mocked by Israel. He wouldn't be mocked by anyone. Let us be true to our vows. However long ago it is, and maybe you've done something wrong and maybe you haven't confessed it to the Lord. The Lord hasn't forgotten. And those of you who are not saved, don't think that God will not remember every sin that you've done. The only hope that anybody has is Jesus Christ. And all of God's people run to him for refuge. God will bring every sin to account. God is a God of justice, my friends. Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he reap. That's one lesson. The next lesson is God is also merciful. See how merciful he is to David over the Philistines. If we turn to God, 
he will turn again unto us, will he not? And will he not do us good? The Lord is good, friends. He is so good that he sent his dear son. To do what? To simply go to a manger? No. But to go to a cross and to bear the curse of his people. To take their punishment to himself and also that he might live in them. How do you know Christ lives in you? You walk after him. You love his commandments. You want to obey them. You will know God's blessing. Amen.